to another episode of Where the Change Begins. My name is Neetra Mittal and today I'll be talking about businesses and sustainability. Most importantly, um, what they're doing to make things worse, but also what they're doing to help and sort of like the imbalance and balance between the idea of sustainability and a business. And Daniel Simmons, um, the president of the Environmental Network at UB, joins me for a small discussion towards the end. So please stay tuned for that. Um, We'll be talking about companies and sustainability and what the Environmental Network does. So yeah, to start with, um, a few fun facts about how Western businesses are exploiting developing countries. Did you know that between 2015 and 2018, 14 million cars were sold to developing countries from countries like Japan, the EU, and the US? Well, okay, what's special about this, right? Um, Well, it turns out a lot of these cars are actually those that have been declared, quote unquote, too dangerous for use. This is to say that they don't meet environmental standards and pollute more than newer cars. And about 70% of these 14 million dangerous cars are being sold to countries in Africa. Now, what's more surprising is that the WHO estimates that about 90% of road accidents occur in low to middle income countries with the highest death rates in Africa. And so businesses identifying what's a great market opportunity in developing countries is actually coming at a great expense of human life. And it is a very deliberate and intentional move. And these countries are often bound by trade agreements set by institutions built by the West to open their borders for liberalization, tax regulations. And I was watching the 2019 Noble Minds discussion the other day. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's basically a roundtable discussion, but with the Nobel laureates of the year. And in it, Esther Dufflow, who's the second woman ever to win a Nobel Prize in economics and the youngest recipient of the prize as well, she says that, and I quote, the global warming effects are going to hurt people in the poor world more than those in the rich world, mostly because it's hotter there and because they have fewer means to adjust. So the problem we have to face isn't in 2050, it's yesterday. And I completely agree with that. I mean, if you're going to come out with very progressive climate policy, you have to make sure that the effects of it aren't Um, just being transferred from your country to another one, which is often the case with a lot of Western corporations and countries. So it's, it's just to say that we need to be more mindful of the impacts of transferring the responsibility to developing countries that are doing worse in many ways. And I was also thrifting with my friend just the other day, and she told me about um, chemicals that were banned decades ago, a chemical called DDT, which was recently found at the bottom of the ocean floor. If you're not familiar with it, I do recommend you read up about this, either on Wikipedia or like other news sources. But um, as many as half a million of these barrels could still be on a water right now. From 1947 to 1982, the nation's largest manufacturer of DDD, which is a pesticide so powerful that it poisoned birds and fishes, was based in L.A., and Montrose Executives, which is um, a company that manufactured DDT, 
aggressively defend the DDD through the 1960s. And this was during a time when the public was reckoning with alarming concerns about how food chains and uh, were being poisoned and ecosystems were being poisoned. To sum up why DDD was poisonous to ecosystems, think of it this way. As organisms consumed it, it was stored in the fat of these organisms. And through a process called biomagnification, the effects of DDD were then compounded through the food chain. So you basically had, um, say, for example, microscopic plantain that were eating DDT. And fishes then went on to consume huge quantities of plankton, these plankton, like they do. And then these fishes were then consumed by birds, like pelicans, for example. And then there were researchers who were discovering that the effect it had on the eggs of pelicans was um, quite astounding. It resulted in the thinning of eggshells, which resulted in the catastrophic population de- decline for multiple North American and European bird of prey species. So that's birds like the bald eagle, brown pelicans, peregrine falcons, and um, osprey. And these were even observed in like human, this even had human effects like that of our immune systems being compromised. And research showed that in a new generation of women, those who were exposed to DDD from their mothers who were exposed by their mothers, um, they still grapple with the risks of breast cancer, for example. And so Montrose executives went to extreme lengths to defend their business by saying in letters and editorials that DDD played a vital role in society when properly used, and that it was not a serious threat to human health. They accused environmentalists of scare tactics and misleading information and touted the company's reputation of making the best DDD in the world. And for years, a company called California Salvage, which um, was responsible for dumping Montrose's DDD waste, they hauled everything out to sea. And these workers that worked for the company, they were instructed to dump in a designated spot. But compliance inspections were very infrequent, and crews sometimes took shortcuts, like dumping this waste in much closer, much shallower waters. And you know, like I... I was going through links and articles to make this podcast episode and it just kept reminding me of this common pattern that you see with so many companies that are notorious polluters. Like ExxonMobil, I'm sure you know, was aware of climate change as early as 1977. And this was 11 years before it became a public issue. Um... And this didn't prevent the company from spending decades refusing to publicly acknowledge climate change and even promoting climate misinformation, um, which is pretty much similar to how the tobacco industry did, did so with health risks of smoking. And both these industries, in this case, were cons- con- conscious that their products wouldn't stay profitable once the world understood their risks. So they had to use... Um, strategies and develop strategies to communicate to the public that there were no risks. And, you know, one of the largest, latest estimates is that the world's five largest publicly owned oil and gas companies spent about 200 million a year on lobbying to control, delay and block binding climate policy. And of course, you know that it worked because there was a huge population of Americans that refused to um, acknowledge 
that climate change was a man-made phenomenon. But I suppose that's changing um, with recent polls that are showing that, you know, there's a growing consciousness in younger generations and there's better media coverage about climate science. And uh, we're, we're platforming actual scientists as opposed to, um, you know, politicians that may have a vested interest but, you know, I feel like I've thrown a lot of depressing information at you. So here's something that's a little more hopeful. Um, Joe Biden was just made president. And according to his climate policy, the U.S. is going to achieve a 100% clean energy economy and net zero emissions by 2050, which is amazing because because we currently rank um, number two on the 20, most, 20 countries that pollute the most carbon dioxide with 5.41 gigatons worth of carbon emissions. And that accounts for 15% of the total carbon emissions in the world. So we definitely have time to diverse these effects, um, do so while being equitable in our approach and striving for environmental justice because... There really is no sustainability and a sustainable future without accounting for everyone and caring for everyone. And, you know, there's so much to say about businesses and sustainability. And honestly, the list is never ending. And I might make another episode of, uh, about this sometime in the future. Don't know when. But for now, I'm going to end this podcast episode with the interview I um got to do with Daniel Simmons, the president of the Environmental Network Club at UB. And we discuss um, sort of this very issue and also how like how we in general struggle with a collective action problem and how finding a club or like a community that sort of um, um, trying to achieve the same goals you are is very important. So stay tuned for that. So um, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, that'd be great. Sure. So my name is Danielle Simmons. Um, I'm this year's president of the Environmental Network. Um, I'm an environmental studies major with a concentration in environmental resource management. Um, so taking classes like marine ecology, field ecology, um, writing about science, things like that. Um, and I have a lot of experience with nature in the outdoors. So I've learned how to sail when I was younger. Um, I've had experiences as an intern with elementary schools, um, teaching students how to do some gardening, teaching them science projects and lessons. And then I've also um, been a horticulture intern at the Buffalo and Erie Botanical Gardens, where I was creating a repository of um, past budgets, expenses, and meeting minutes, and just working with plants that were in the gardens and learning how to propagate them. Wow, that is amazing. You sound like you've, you've had a lot of experience. Um, so could you tell us a little about the club, Environmental Network, and um, what one can expect as a member? Yeah, sure. So our club, we're all about trying to connect people who are interested about the environment to other individuals that are interested about the environment. So we hold meetings over Zoom because of COVID. 
that are biweekly, and we try to get environmentally conscious individuals who are in the work field um, that are working on environmental issues to come in to talk to our club and to give a little bit of experience on what they're doing. And we allow this members in our club to ask them questions. Um, we can learn from them. Um, and then if they're interested in that job or their profession, they can add them to their network and have them as a contact for the future. And then we also do volunteer projects. So we just did a cigarette butt cleanup a couple weeks ago where we went around campus and we socially distanced and we're collecting cigarette butts from uh, all over campus and on the spine of UB. So um, things like that. It's a combination of networking and doing volunteer experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've uh, participated in like a couple of those myself because um, I think you have those as requirements when you're in essay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was just wondering, like, how has your club been dealing with COVID? Has it impacted the way you do things? Well, it has been a little bit tricky trying to get more members to join this year just because we haven't been able to do any tabling outside um, and in person. So all of our um, all of our meetings are on Zoom right now. But we are trying to get people to go outside and in the field and or on campus and do any volunteering projects that we can just to get some sense of community that all the environmentally conscious people are or people who care about the environment are working together on something. Yeah, absolutely. And like in your club, do you see a lot of people from a variety of majors or is it just like very focused um, like towards the environmental sciences? Because to me, sustainability and like climate change is very like multidisciplinary issue. So I was just wondering if like you had people from all different like backgrounds in your club. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, a lot of people on our board, we're not all environmental science majors. Um, I'm an environmental studies major, but our vice president isn't, even though she is an environmental major, um, you can still be part of our club and you don't have to be on that direct path. As long as you have an interest in the environment, we welcome, we're welcome to everyone. We welcome everyone. Yes, yes that's awesome. Um, so what about you? Like what do you to the club and like how have, since you've been a like member of the club, how have your experiences shaped the way you think about sustainability? Do you approach it with like more despair or do you have like more hope? Like has it been? Well, um, I definitely have, I definitely have uh, changed my mind on a lot of the things and what I buy because of all the information I've learned from the club in the past years. Mm -hmm. um, I don't buy, I try to limit my consumption of plastic now. Um, and I try to make as many switches in my life that are more sustainable. And all the people that are in this club, they also care about those things like that. So I'm always learning from the members that are in there in our club or the people are on our board um just some more information like just the other day we had a lesson on fast fashion and learning how terrible it is for our world so this year for halloween i tried to um thrift as many pieces like as i could for my costume so um 
That is so just good. learning from other people about that and, you know, bringing ideas together. It's, it's really helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes me think, um, you know, there's so many people I know personally who do so much when it comes to assuming personal responsibility to help with climate change. But, you know, then you see statistics like 100 companies globally are responsible for just 71% of global emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. Like, do you see, do you, do you think of it as more of a personal responsibility or like a corporate responsibility? Or do you think the government has to play a larger role in this? Yeah, so that's actually a great question. Um, it's very tri- it's very difficult to determine whether or not it's an individual responsibility, a government or a corporate, just because that we're all using the earth for our needs, but we use them in different ways. So individual wise, you know, usually you're not making that much of a change to the earth's total carbon footprint. Um, or carbon emissions, but people that are in charge of corporations or the government, they have a larger say on what can be done. So I feel like we really need to narrow in on what they're doing and either put regulations or incentives for our government and for corporations to make changes so that we were not increasing our um, world's temperature in the future yeah absolutely um it's i mean it just seems like we have such little time to do all of that yeah Um, yeah and do you do you personally think that there's a meaningful balance between sustainability and business because recently i had the chance to um go to a sustainable roundtable conference and in it there was like a segment where they talked about restorative businesses And one of the panelists mentioned how a business could never be restorative because like inherently it's about taking away resources. And so like you can never replenish those resources once they're gone. So like, I don't know, do you think there's like a balance that can be created as far as that goes? And um, like businesses can either evolve to um, like, like take up technology that's sustainable or um, do you think that there, there needs to be more of a push in that area? Oh, absolutely. Um, I definitely think that businesses need to become more sustainable throughout the supply chain. Um, and to do that, you really need to incorporate more environmental science majors or people who have a background on environmental science to go into those companies and to allow them to make changes because environmental science really is an interdisciplinary topic. um, And that relates to things like the economy, politics. um, And we work a lot with biology, ecology, things like that. And when you put those two things together, you can really make a lot of changes. So you can make companies more green um, throughout their supply chain. Um, You can work within the offices to make them more sustainable, whether that's trying to put in different light bulbs that are LEDs or to try to work on um, the whole way the company operates to make them more sustainable. It's just really difficult now because companies can try to do this, but you want to make sure that they're not greenwashing themselves so that way they look like they're becoming more sustainable. Um, 
even if they're trying to make an effort to say that they are, you want to like actually check to make sure they are making positive changes. So that's just the tricky part within it all. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as far as UB goes, do you think um, UB's doing a good job? Because we just came out with like a climate action plan. Yeah. So that's setting us on like the right path. But like in your experience as like a member of this club, how have you come across like situations where, you know, you think UB can do, be doing better and like what areas do you think we can improve on? I think definitely having people come together to talk about their ideas um, on what we can do as a university or within the entire city of Buffalo is very important. Um, and that's kind of what the environmental network does is we have a group of people who are, they're all interested in making change. So it's very difficult for individuals to make a change on their self, on their own. You know, you can try to consume less meat or you can try to use um, products that use less plastic in them, but you are one person. So when we have a whole group of people come together, um, we're creating ideas that might have a bigger change or might make bigger change on campus or on in the city of Buffalo. So I think definitely like there's power in numbers <laughs> with this topic. Yeah, for sure. Um, and just on the like subject of coming together, that right now we're seeing like unprecedented levels of people not believing in climate science. And this has sort of become like a an issue where it's being politicized to a point where there's severe inaction happening. So yeah. You, like present this issue in a way that brings it to the attention of a large number of people and like people have like presented in a way that it's not um, like a political thing, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. And this is a problem with environmental science that's been happening for a very long time is that within the scientific field, it's very difficult for us to get our viewpoints out to people who might not be scientists and might be everyday ordinary people or whatever type of job that they're doing. Um, so it's very difficult to try to get this message out that change needs to be happening very quickly. Um, change needs to be happening now. Um, so I definitely believe it's in the way that you word um, what's important to you. So telling someone that they need to make a change um, in like a very negative way, uh, someone's not going to react to that positively. You have to kind of see who you're talking to. If you're talking to a business major, you're going to want to make sure that you can explain to them that if they try to make environmental changes within their company, yes, it might be costly right now, but within or down the road, um, they're going to be saving money and they're also going to be protecting the environment and the resources um, that we have. So you definitely have to look at it um, within a different perspective. Uh, for whoever you're talking to. Um, you can't just always talk in scientific language because not a, not a lot of people understand that. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and just like, this is probably the last question I have for you. Um, sure. Um, a lot of companies recently have started, ever since like BlackRock um, CEO came out with his letter saying that, you know, 
it hurts your profits as a business um, if you're not thinking about climate change every step yep. of the way. So like ever since then, Amazon's like been doing things to go carbon neutral by 2030. Microsoft's trying to go carbon negative by 2030. Delta is trying to do something um, despite being a business that's completely reliant on fossil fuels. So do you think we should rely on corporations at the end of the day to go carbon neutral or carbon negative for us to get out of this issue? Because in many ways, corporations are what caused this problem. So I was wondering if you had thoughts on this. Um, I think it's, it's definitely you need to have a balance between corporations and um, the government. I'm not sure if that's what you're asking. Um, that, is it the shared balance? Is that what you're talking about? Or is it just the corporations? Just the corporations. What do you think about like, um, you know, them doing this as sort of what's like Gabby headlines? Um, like, do you think they can get us out of the mess that they very well created? Or is it more of like yeah. regulations on part of the government, for example? Um, quite honestly, I think that there needs to be a balance between both of them. Um, you know, like, I think that there definitely needs, we need to look at possible ways of um, putting in cap and trade policies for companies to follow. So that would limit their emissions that they have um, and then put a price on them or a price tag on them. Um, but that's done through the government because they're the ones who would be able to put into laws how to regulate um, these industries and these emissions. So I think it needs to be a balance between the both of the two. Definitely companies, um, they are the ones that have created such a big problem for us. Um, and they're the ones who are, you know, emitting the most. But mm -hmm. if they're not following a set of rules that we have from our government, I'm not sure if all of them will want to follow these um, new laws or if there is no laws, they might not want to be as green if they don't want to be, because um, that's their up to them. So I definitely think that having some government laws be put in place for cap and trade would be very beneficial for us. Absolutely, um, I completely agree. So do you have any upcoming events that you'd like our listeners to take part in? And go ahead and plug anything you have here. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we are going to be having a tree planting event coming up next week. We're still deciding on whether it's going to be on the 7th or the 14th, but we will be confirming that very shortly. So if you want to stay involved with us through the Environmental Network, you can definitely reach us out, reach out to us at UB underscore Envio Network, um, or you can become contact or you can become in contact with us um, through emailing me um, and we can add you to our listserv if you'd ever like to come to one of our meetings. Absolutely. I got in touch with Danielle to um, Bank, so you could just go ahead and look them up there. So thank you so much for taking part in this and like giving us all your wonderful insights and thank you for your work as well. And that's it for this podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to Where the Change Begins. Um, we're a group of student assistants working for UB Sustainability and on their climate action plan. Please read about it on our website if you want to know more about it and uh, want to get involved with us. Um, 